everyone. Welcome to Film Fans Podcast, the podcast from movie fans for movie fans. I am your host, Ryan Dunley, joined by the Hawaiian shirt pirate clad Rob Dunham. R. There it is. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, we've got an excellent show for you today. We will review Thor Love and Thunder. We're going to talk about how Christopher Nolan shoots movies in three different budgets. We'll talk about the best Cold War movies and, of course, our watch list. Uh, but, Rob, let's first get started with a little bit of our box office update. Uh, week number two, Thor Love and Thunder as the top in the box office. Uh, it did have a significant drop off in week two. Uh, it made $46.4 million after the 144 it put up last weekend. So almost a $100 million drop for Thor Love and Thunder, but still enough to keep the top spot. Uh, Minions Rise of Gru in its third week did uh, $26.8 million. Where the Crawdads Sing finished third at $17.3 million in its debut weekend. Top Gun Maverick, man. The movie that doesn't quit. 12.4 in its eighth week in the box office. And Elvis, 8 million rounds out the top five. Elvis has cracked the $100 million mark. Uh, what'd you make box office results? Well, first of all, the fact that Top Gun only made like a quarter less than, uh, than uh, Thor. Yeah. It's insane. It's been out for two months. It's crazy. Still making over $10 million a week. Yep. It's um, amazing. I'm not super surprised at the drop-off for Thor. I think that a lot of people who wanted to see it probably saw it the opening week. Yeah. It came out. Mm -hmm. And unlike some other Marvel movies like um, No Way Home, etc., I don't think it's one that is necessarily going to have a huge amount of like people being told they should go see it. Like. Yeah. You know, it's just not the same kind of movie. Yeah. As that was. Yeah, agreed. And we'll get to exactly what Thor Love and Thunder was and was not in just a minute. Um, nothing nothing particular stands out for me. Um, I think the only debut entrance was where the Carl Dads sing. I think that's about makes sense for that that type of movie, 17.3. I think it's a pretty good showing for that type of movie. And especially with the box office and, and everything else that was in there. So um yeah yeah i thought it uh thought it did quite well uh one movie of note to, it's coming out this coming week and that is of course nope the latest horror thriller from jordan peele comes out this week and um it has it has its box office in terms of new movies basically all to itself there's some minor stuff that's coming out uh but basically, it's the residents of a lonely gulch in inland California bear witness to an uncanny and chilling discovery. And it's uh, Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer are the main characters to this movie. Uh, Rob, I know with your newfound horror uh, genre uh, interest and friends, uh, I'm guessing you're going to go see this. I already have tickets for tomorrow night. There so. you go. Yep. Mm -hmm. I'll be going to see it with my best friend and a couple other of our friends. Yeah. Uh, tomorrow evening, eight o'clock. Um, I I am. Uh, I, I think this movie has potential to be like a twenty-five to thirty million dollar opening 
mm. weekend release for a horror movie, which mm. would be really strong. Yeah. But I think a, co- a couple of things make me think that I think Jordan Peele is um, a name now. Yeah. I think there, there was an article I read this week about how people um, are going to see movies because Jordan Peele is involved mm-hmm. because of what his success with his first couple movies. Yeah. Um, I think that this movie has been marketed really well too. Um, I think they've done a good job of like teasing out what exactly is happening in the movie over the course of the initial teaser trailer and the trailers that followed. Um, so I think there's a lot of interest in seeing exactly what's going to happen mm-hmm. in the movie. So I, I think it, it reaches a fairly broad audience and I think it's going to do a pretty significant number for that genre. Yeah. I think you're right on all those fronts. Um, name recognition for uh, Jordan Peele is definitely up there, especially when it comes to the horror movie. I think this one may actually do, I don't, I think you're probably right about box office numbers, but I think it may actually attract some people who have not seen his other movies because they're marketing it almost, almost in the same vein as, uh, oh, now I'm blanking on the movie. Uh, Quiet Place. Yes, that's the movie I'm thinking about. Almost that type of thriller more so than a straight up horror movie. Yeah. You get that sense of it, and and that does attract a slightly different audience than than your strict horror does, uh, which we've seen from him before. So I think that switch in genre a little bit, if that's what the movie actually is, it's being marketed that way, uh, might actually draw a slightly wider audience than you might get for a typical horror movie. Yeah, I do know that when I bought the tickets two days ago, mm-hmm. um, there were two showings in the later evening at the regal near me and the seven o'clock one, there were not any seats outside the front two rows and the eight o'clock one already had probably 20 seats taken when I got tickets. So um, I think that it's going to do really well uh, for debut. So we'll see just how well. Mm -hmm. So that's your uh, box office update. Let's uh, let's move on to Thor love and thunder. Uh, We'd promised a review of it this week. Now that I finally got around to seeing it. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. What we'll do, like we typically do on our, our reviews, is we'll give an overview with no uh, specific spoilers. Then we'll dive down into the specifics of the movie with a spoiler warning beforehand. All right, Rob, give me your overall thoughts without the spoilers. Uh, I think my first thought would be that um, it's not Thor Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I guess, is up for debate. Um, but it, tonally, it is a much different movie mm-hmm. than Ragnarok was. There's certainly, in my opinion, there's quite a bit of good humor in it. But the humor is more of a counterpoint to the serious stuff going on. I think when I think that Ragnarok, it was kind of um, flipped. I think mm-hmm. the serious things are more of a counterpoint to the humor. Yeah. So that's like my one main overarching thought about the movie. Yeah, I think I think the movie, uh, you're right that it's definitely not Ragnarok. Um, I think that you're, you're right to focus on tone because I think the tone is what stands out with this movie. There's major shifts in tone throughout the movie. And I don't know if it necessarily knows what it wants to be. 
from a tone standpoint. Um, there are lots of attempts at humor. Um, I think some are more successful than others. And I think Christian Bale was excellent. Yes. I think, I think that's another major standout is that Christian Bale was excellent. Um, I very much enjoyed seeing the return of Natalie Portman, which is not a spoiler because she was in the trailers. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think it's absolutely a movie worth seeing, but it is not, it is not to the, for me, it's not to the level that Ragnarok was. And I do think it's slightly to the detriment of the movie. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's our overall, our overall thoughts uh, in general. So now we'll break down the movie a little bit more specifically. And this is your spoiler warning. We are now going to get into the details of the movie. If you do not want to hear the details of the movie, uh, you can look in the description and we will, and you can fast forward to the next segment. All right, Rob, let's do a full breakdown. Um, what, let's, let's start out with strengths. Let's just do that. Let's start off with what were the strengths that you viewed from this movie? Um, so I think that the scenes that had emotional weight were done well. Mm-hmm. I think that's the strength of the movie. But I do agree with you that I, I think the tonal shifts make it harder for them to, I don't know what the right word is, to maybe be coherent in the context of the movie. Mm-hmm or to be as impactful as they should be. Yeah. Because it does, it does feel like it kind of jerks around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not expecting the movie to start out with Christian Bale holding his dying daughter. That was uh, yeah. a very intense beginning and a not normal Marvel beginning to a movie. Yeah. We have to stop and talk about that for a second because I don't know how it was in the theater you saw it in, but like they just rolled right into that. There were like not really Marvel credits. There were not like they mm-hmm. just it just rolled right into it. And so the the person I was going to see the movie with is like, is this part of the movie? <laughs> yeah, it's part of the movie, and it just yeah. it was not like it. It was so cr- strange, especially with the marketing. The marketing all focused on the humor aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So to start a movie that dark, as it were. I mean, it had some really dark themes in it right from the get-go. That was yeah. very that was a very unusual choice. Yeah. Uh, I think I guess he did that because he wanted to showcase that character mm-hmm. to give us an understanding of who that character is as the story goes on. But I agree it was a very interesting choice given that it's a Thor movie and it was not Thor that we were mm-hmm. starting out with in the movie. Yeah, I mean, and we've seen that in plenty of other movies where they start with another character to kind of bring out what's going to happen in the movie. But it was just such a different shift between what you're expecting and what they deliver right from the bat. It really throws the audience for a loop right from the get-go. Um, that can be effective as a, as a tool, um, but I think it was more just strange at that point. You're like, okay, this might not be the movie I'm expecting. Yeah. That being said, I think that um, if you're looking at the the story of um, Christian Bale's character Gore uh, throughout the movie, I think it's told pretty well. And I think it, it's funny that we say that 
the movie's a little back and forth tonally, maybe not the best movie when he might be one of the best villains that have been in any Marvel movie. Yeah. Right. Th- uh, both things can be true, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he's someone with real um, ambition and real purpose behind why he's mm-hmm. um, the bad guy. Yeah. And he has actual like menace mm-hmm. and you're actually afraid of him. Yeah. And they have not always pulled that off. No. And, and I think it's, I think this character is, I mean, the one thing from the writing standpoint that they did was they gave him very clear motivations and rationale. Like you had no doubt as to why he was doing what he was doing. Um, so that from a writing standpoint, that came out very clearly, but I think the large majority of why this character was so successful was Christian Bale. I mean, you know, he always puts absolutely every single thing into all of one, all of his roles, even when like the movie is not that good, he always stands out in it. And, and that is never more apparent than in this movie. Um, you're right. The, the, the menace, the malice, the, um, nihilism of his character is, is deeply apparent. Um, this is a man who, you know, similar to another Christian Bell movie wants just wants to watch the world burn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and to be able to him to be able to portray that as well as he did in the different settings and surroundings um, was absolutely one of the best parts about this movie. And you're right. This is an infinitely better bad guy than what we've seen in plenty of the other Marvel movies. Um, um, I, th- I, I, uh, I think the direction they're heading is interesting. I know we're going to get to mm-hmm. direction at some point, but when it comes to just general uh, introductory thoughts, the idea of adding or expanding into the pantheon of the gods is a very interesting Mm-hmm. thing with i think a lot of potential um but we'll have to see what they do with that yeah so i want to as we kind of shifted uh, is there any other obvious strengths you want to get to um i i still think that uh the humor for the most part was pretty good in my opinion mm-hmm. i i I did laugh at the goats a few times, but I also thought they were stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't understand the need for screaming space goats every yeah. 15 uh, minutes. Apparently, I, I didn't read the whole story, but apparently it was based off of or inspired by a Taylor Swift meme. Uh, that's funny. So, uh, yeah, you'll have to look that up if you're... Uh, if you're well, I, know the ta- I know the Taylor Swift meme, so... Yeah. Um, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Um, I will say, like, I thought I thought they did take some good emotional turns for this one. I think they gave a little bit more meat to the character uh, of Thor, and I still think Chris Hemsworth is excellent playing that role. Um, but let's get it. Let's get into the humor in it because I have very mixed thoughts on the humor overall. Um, I want the two things I'm, I'm very mixed on is, is the scenes with the pantheon of gods and, and the, the humor. Um, there were a lot of moments that, um, that I thought to myself, okay, this is supposed to be funny. It's kind of funny. 
but laughing just feels like I'm supposed to laugh a little bit more than I'm genuinely, I'm genuinely yeah. amused by this. That I don't know how you felt, but there was a lot of like, like the writing, the humor writing was clever, but slightly obvious at times, slightly on the nose. Um, I, and I'm trying to figure out whether or not it was because um, after Ragnarok, I'm now used to that style of humor in that movie from those characters. And so that's why it wasn't, it didn't quite resonate with me as much mm -hmm. or if it just wasn't as well thought out, well planned. Um, if it just didn't quite execute, I just, I felt a lot like the jokes were just didn't quite land. Um, what, what were your thoughts? A couple of things I really liked um, humor wise in the movie. Mm -hmm. I liked um, Korg being used as a narrator and his mm -hmm. way of telling a story. Editorializing. Um, quite humorous. <laughs> yes, the, I did um, agree. That was good. And I know this might be one of the things that you were not so sure about, but to me, I, I found the uh, the hammer, the hammer acting like, or, the, or Thor's new uh, weapon acting jealous of the hammer. I, I thought that was pretty funny, personally. I I I liked it. I I don't I don't know if I found it funny. I, I liked it. Yeah, like it was interesting. The personification of of the the jealousy between the the hammer and the the new hammer. So yeah, I, I thought it was. I thought it was. It was funny. I yeah. I, I just like overall, I probably I was probably a little more positive on that one than I was in some of the other stuff. So. I think the funniest part of that whole thing was the one time he picked up his old hammer and he was like, yeah, like because he was just checking to see if he was still worthy to hold the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought that was pretty funny because yeah. that was like um, I thought that was a reference that they didn't explain and didn't need explaining. It was just funny because of yeah. mm -hmm. what it was. Yeah, for sure. Um. Yeah, so for me, it just didn't it didn't quite work. And I think this would be a, a good transition. Like I thought one of the places it didn't work the most was in that pantheon of gods, like the omnipotent city. Mm. If I'm getting that right. Um, especially with the direction they took that later, especially with the Zeus character. Um that I think scene was the it was the biggest tonally the biggest mess tonally um they were really trying to do way too much with that and didn't really know exactly what that scene was supposed to be um it was they tried to use a lot of humor in that but it was also supposed to be really serious and you were also supposed to be really cynical at the same time um and and so I really thought that that scene was probably the most muddled scene of the entire movie in terms of like, it really didn't, it really didn't accomplish what I think they were hoping to. And I'm not hundred percent sure exactly what they were hoping to accomplish with that scene from, from yeah. that standpoint. Uh, what, what did you think? Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. I, um, there like they're just adding this whole new paradigm yeah. to things. And when you do that, you've got to create investment in it. And mm -hmm. I'm, I mean, they've really kind of, and maybe this is what was intended, set these 
gods or this group of people up as like colossal tools basically Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but i mean i think that's intentional because it seems based on what happened in the post-credit scenes at the end of the movie that they're gonna go after yeah um, the heroes so uh i guess we don't want to like them so i think they did a good job of making them unlikable you're right they made them unlikable the problem is they made them seem silly, pedantic, and ineffectual. Mm-hmm. So, like, now we're supposed to believe Thor is the, or uh, Zeus is this major potential bad guy, but they basically neutered him in that scene the entire time. So, they did not even set him up as, as really all that powerful. I mean, Thor basically owns him the entire time. Um, he, he looks silly and incompetent and it just it really doesn't it didn't it doesn't speak highly of that being your introduction to the character if the all of the whole goal is you're supposed to hate this guy yeah sure that works you know and i'm not blaming russell crowe on this one because i think he was Mm -hmm. fine um but if your goal is to set him up as an upcoming menace, there was nothing in his in the scenes in Omnipotent City that led you believe to believe this guy is really of any threat. There was just, it was hard to take him seriously. Yeah, I wonder if they're. I wonder in some ways if that that's intentional based on where they want to go with the character of Hercules. Yeah, um, but I guess we won't really know that until we see what they do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also I also thought trying the we talked about this a little bit with humor but like this is a deeply cynical scene like it really is meant to be deeply cynical like these gods who are out there and everyone's supposedly worshipping them and they're supposed to be they're supposed to be out there protecting people and they just don't give a rip whatsoever and you know and Thor, Thor is deeply disappointed at his hero, and all these It's a deeply cynical scene, and they just keep trying to lob in the humor of it. And I felt like they could have leaned more into the emotion of that, mm-hmm. and and it would have been better off to do that in that moment. Um, but that's not the direction they went to it. Yeah, I'm wondering if with all the other heavy stuff going on like the bad guy and gene mm-hmm. fighting cancer and these yeah. other things you just didn't want to make that super serious too yeah yeah so that's where i think like a lot of the humor that didn't quite fit to me might all might be in that scene because it just like the juxtaposition just didn't work for me um any other any other weaknesses that you that you identified I, I think that the uh, I, I don't think there was a whole lot. I think that um, the kids they used in the movie were pretty effective, mm-hmm. which yeah. can be a difficult thing to do. Yeah. Um, Heimdall's son, I thought, was compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And him like learning how to communicate and how to be a leader on his own. Mm-hmm. So I think that. It's interesting because I think the main takeaway of what made this movie not absolutely amazing is that that 
tone shifting because yeah, really, I think a lot of the parts of the movie are great, mm-hmm. but somehow they don't add up to, like we said, they don't add up to a movie like the level of Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a philosophical element here, uh, which, which is really, I mean, there's a, there's kind of a deep philosophical element to this movie. Now they didn't really play into that strongly and develop it, but specifically with the Christian Bale character and the idea of if you, I, I think Nietzsche talked about it when he talked about the death of God, where he, where he basically said, and, and we won't be able to wipe the blood away from our hands. And, and the basic thing he was trying to say is that as a result of people no longer believing in God, what you will, what you will come to see is a significant amount of horrors. And then of course we saw the 20th century and all the horrors that came in, came with that. And so there's an element of that in there when, when Christian Bale uh, basically at the beginning of the movie, when he is disaffected by his gods and then goes on, uh, nihilistic he becomes nihilistic and goes on a massive killing spree so there's a lot of philosophical meat there uh but for me it came crashing down at the very end um again i think we saw a similar problem for me that we saw although not to the ridiculous scale that we saw in wonder woman 84 the whole wish fulfillment element of it um if you get one wish and you can wish for whatever you want, you know, how are you not wishing for yourself and your daughter to be safe somewhere? Like why, why does your daughter, why is it one or the other? So that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, Also the, the whole idea that this guy who's been in a gradual descent into the abyss killing everything in sight and continually getting worse to the point where he's like kidnapping children um, and is destined to try and destroy every God all of a sudden at the very end of the movie, just listens to the God he was trying to kill five seconds ago. I, I didn't, I just didn't buy that as well. It, it, it seemed a little bit on the cheap side for that, for me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm sure somebody else probably was like, nah, it was fine. I, I, I'm totally cool with that. Um, it just didn't quite work for me on that front. Yeah, I don't think it by any stretch is a terrible movie. No, no, no. I don't think it's a good movie, but there's a, there's a standard set by the previous Thor movie that I don't think it reached. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so let's, where does this leave Marvel at this point? Uh, we know some of the movies that were coming up. We got another Black Panther movie coming up here soon. Um, did we get a major sense of what's coming up with Marvel and what the future of Marvel is uh, going forward for the next year or two? Well, I think the only thing that we were shown was like the introduction of the the, the gods being a part of things. Yeah. And uh, it's yet to be seen how big a role hercules will have but obviously that's a name that doesn't matter who you are when you see that cup in the post-credit scene that's uh sparks interest yeah. because of how much um, has been done with that character in the past mm-hmm. um i i paid attention very closely to the wording of what zeus had to say 
And he specifically referenced going after Thor. And I thought that was very interesting because uh, the question I have is, is this a future Thor storyline or is this a future Marvel storyline? If you know what I mean, like, mm-hmm. is this going to be something that's going to involve the rest of the characters in Marvel, or is this just something they're going to come back to later with Thor? Um, the wording seemed to suggest maybe it's not as universal, but who knows? That might that might just be me parsing the language too quickly. But yeah, I don't think we got a major clue. I'm still waiting to get a major sense of the direction they're headed now, um, which is unusual to be this far into the next phase and really have no idea where it's headed. I mean, the question that you have to ask too is that um, throughout the whole first series of movies the first couple phases they had an end point in mind fairly early on so they're able to build all the way to that yeah so the question is is there an actual end point yeah in mind for the phase that they're in currently yeah and i i hope they know but they're not really they're not really giving you a lot of clues so it does make you wonder all right well i think we'll put the uh Thor Love and Thunder review to bed and move on uh, to our next phase. So uh, you came across this video and I really liked it. Um, It is a, it's about a 14 minute video and we'll post the link in the description for this, but it basically is a video that talks about how Christopher Nolan shoots a movie in three different budgets. Um, Give us some more details. So it uh, tracks Christopher Nolan um, across three movies uh, following, which was his very first movie, uh, Memento, which uh, was early on in his career, a few movies in, and then um, Inception, which obviously is like the big one, I think, that a lot of people connected to him for the first time or, you know, pointed at and said to their friends, look, (laughs) like, this is what we've been talking about, because I mean, the Prestige did pretty well, mm-hmm. but it wasn't Memento. I mean, Memento cost, or not Inception. Inception cost more to make than than yeah. the Prestige made. So, um, it's it's uh, a look at how he shoots things across the three different films with the different budgets, um, what he invests the money from the budget into, whether it's actors or. Um, visual effects or recording equipment or all kinds of different things, locations mm-hmm. um, is very interesting, detailed breakdown of, you know, what you do when you have a certain amount of money. Yeah. And I think it really emphasizes that he is a director who is very um, capable of adapting to the resources that he has. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've kind of felt a lot of this, that they said in this uh, video was true before I saw this video. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the reasons why Christopher Nolan is one of my favorite directors, because I do feel like there's um, some kind of common thread through everything he's done. Yeah. Um, and I think that this, this little video brought some of that out. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that Nolan does better than almost anyone else is understand and use his limits to his advantage. Um, whereas most people would use like a limited budget or 
or constraints in terms of days shooting uh, and would be, it would be a negative. They would view it as a negative. Uh, he views it as a positive. And I, I gotten the sense of this from, from reading his book as well, that he likes limitations and he likes that challenge because it, it causes him to think. Um, they were talking about in, in the following, his major limitation was, of course, budget. And it's a $6,000 film, I think, if I'm yep. making that correct. And one of the things that they talked about is, well, with, with this little money, we're not going to be able to do color balance. We're not going to be able to get the colors right. So what does he do? He shoots it in black and white so that he can get effects without having to worry about how he's going to equalize the colors out. And so right then and there, that makes a difference. And he did a lot of things like um, having lots of scenes where there's a window next, the characters next to a window to take advantage of, of the, the light and the shadows aspect of it, uh, which was really, really cool. Um, the second, secondly, with, you know, with constraints on film and constraints on days, like Memento, that was one of the big things they had 25 days to do principal photography. And so one of the things that it was saying that that teaches you is how to get scenes right, how to rehearse things and get them right and have a clear vision of what you want out of a scene so that you're not having to keep reshooting over and over and over again, which was a big problem on the following because he didn't have enough money for film and a big problem on Memento because he didn't have as much days. Uh, but it does really do, do a good job outlining um, all the different aspects of what he did differently. It's, it's a really cool breakdown um, in terms of the budgetary proposals and, and how budgets line up. Uh, but this really does line up with something I was reading in, in the book on Nolan, where he basically, he said, um, one of the things that helped him get to do what he wanted on some of his early films, where he did have more limitations, is because he regularly came in on time and under budget. He says, basically, you don't get the studio's attention until you start going over budget or you start taking longer than you're supposed to. Then they come in and start cracking down on you. But he figured out early enough how to manipulate the system. If I shoot under budget and if I come in on time or, or quicker, then I pretty much get to do what I want. So there's another example of him using constraints as an advantage rather than a disadvantage. And then... Finally, with Inception, you got to see him like, okay, now that he's got the full budget, he's got everything to work with, what he can do. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating, fascinating video. Yeah, it's pretty clear that he has always been someone who is um, character story driven. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why he has succeeded because he's been able to translate that um, through every movie that he's done, no matter what the budget was. And mm -hmm. one thing I found in particular um, that was fascinating is how he, in all of his movies, has used that idea of natural light yeah. um, being the focus and then augmenting it with artificial light mm -hmm. um, instead of, you know, blowing everything up with light. Yeah. Um, and I, I think a lot of times we don't realize unless you're someone who watches a lot of movies or understands how movies work, mm -hmm. you don't realize the, the role that lighting plays in things. Yeah. Um, and the use of light and shadow is way more apparent in black and white. 
Yeah. Um, Phil, we saw that with the movie Lighthouse. Um, I think when when I saw the uh, the black and white version of uh, now I'm forgetting the movie uh, Bradley Cooper's newest movie, the uh, Nightmare oh. Alley. Um, when I saw the black and white version of that, like it just brings something out when something's in black and white because you see that light and that shadow more than you do um, with color film. And so I think that he learned that lesson, and I think that's one of the reasons why. His, the shot making in his movie is um, so impactful because he's still using those concepts of mm-hmm. how to light something to draw your attention to it. For sure. And I, I think it's pretty cool how the director of photography that he has worked on his movies, Wally Fister, is he pretty much just copied what he did, what Christopher Nolan did in the first movie he made where he was shooting himself. Yeah. But he's a completely different person. So it's cool that they have such a you know, close relationship and understanding between each other on how they want the movie to look. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but yeah, we'll post the link in the video. I recommend you check it out. Um, it's a really fascinating look behind the scenes of movies and what makes them the way they are, uh, both from a budget standpoint and the director. And it does really make a difference. It shows the difference that both directing and budget makes. And there are... Um, yeah. There are other movies, other uh, videos in the series too. The guys yeah. put out one on Noah and Taika Waititi and among others. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd recommend checking all of them out when you have an opportunity. Yeah. Um, so now we'll move on to our second one. Uh, I'm working on a piece for filmforfans.com right now about the best Cold War movies. And so I thought we'd talk about that for a little bit and I'll give you some of the movies on my list and you can check out the rest of them over at filmforfans.com. I'm hoping to have that one out by the time this video uh, debuts on Friday. So um, be looking to filmforfans.com for the full list. Uh, but I've been recently uh, catching up on or re-listening to a, a 13 episode podcast on the Cold War. And it just, every time I, I, I listen to something that had happened, I'm like, oh, I want to watch that movie. Oh, I want to watch the movie about that. And so I thought it would be good, it would be fun to come up with a list of the best movies about the Cold War. Um, so basically, I, I try to pick movies that were specifically uh related to an aspect of the cold war rather than ones that just happen to take place with the cold war as the as the setting as it were um to give you an example like i didn't put top gun on my list uh top gun is negligibly i mean it's obviously takes place during the cold war era and there's hints of cold war in there but it's not it's not directly about the cold war uh, so I didn't choose that one, for example. Uh, however, one of the movies I did choose for the list that I will give you uh, is Miracle. Mm. And Miracle about the 1980 U.S. hockey team, because the Cold War is really the subtext for that entire movie. Uh, the battle between the American college kid hockey team and the dominant Soviet hockey team. There was so much more going on in those moments than simply a hockey team between two rival nations. It was an entire philosophical context and it really was a microcosm of so many, many of the attitudes and mindsets of the cold war. So I did choose miracle on my list. So that's one of them you'll see on my list. Um, 
Another one that I chose was uh, 13 Days. Have you seen 13 Days? I don't believe I have. Okay, it came out, I think, in the year 2000. And it uh, stars Bruce Greenwood as JFK. And it's all about the um, Cuban Missile Crisis that took place in 1962. And it really, it, it dives down into what was going on inside the White House and the Situation Rooms with the Joint Chiefs and everyone involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, so it shows how close it was, the tensions that were wrought. Um, that were riled up the battle, the internal battle as to what to do about this, whether to just invade Cuba, um, how do we avoid nuclear war? Uh, this this cat and mouse game where you're trying to read things and parse language, and um, the stress and strain that that was putting um, not only the leaders under but their entire country under. So it's a really excellent. Uh, film to depict uh, that specific aspect of the Cold War. Um, another one on my list is um, uh, another one on my list is um, Atomic Blonde. Have you seen? Mm. Have you seen Atomic mm -hmm. Now this is one I went back and forth on. Uh, but I did ultimately feel there was it was enough about the Cold War it, uh, to matter. Now, some of the ones that I picked on my list were fictional stories that took place under the Cold War. And if it was going to be a fictional one, it had to very much represent an aspect of the Cold War truthfully. And I think this one, the chaos that was surrounding uh, Berlin specifically, Berlin was a flashpoint of most of the Cold War. And this story takes place almost entirely in Berlin, right at the fall of the Berlin Wall and the intrigue. And you can see the difference between the East and West Berlin and um, all of the spy games that played out back and forth across that divide. Because um, like I said, Berlin really was the flashpoint uh, of the Cold War, um, because if you if you're not familiar with the situation, briefly, um, Berlin was well inside. Like Ru Germany was split in half. The Russians occupied the the, the eastern half, and the Allies, uh, United States, Britain, France, occupied the western half of the country. And Berlin was equally split between the Russians on the eastern half and the. Americans, British, and French in the Western half. The problem was Berlin was 100 miles inside the Russian territory. So it was this little enclave of the West inside the middle of the East. And so that made it a big flashpoint. And so you really capture that with Atomic Blonde. Um, I'll give you one more off the list. I did 10. Um, I did 10 movies for the list and a couple of honorable mentions. Uh, but I'll give you one more. Um, uh, the and that's war games, the mm. classic Matthew Broderick film. War games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. War games had to be on the list, and I think I think what what hit home most with war games is um, that this is a new type of war, and the new technologies coming in behind it, and the kind of scary nature of having. Um, world destructive powers 
along with some of this new technology. I think that really, it really did a great job of showing that, that kind of doomsday scenario aspect of it. So I, I would also like to, uh, this is probably on your list mm-hmm. um, already, but I think maybe one, maybe for me, the quintessential Cold War, when I think about a Cold War movie, I think mm-hmm. maybe the quintessential Cold War movie is Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy from 2011 with uh, Gary Oldman, Colin Firth, Tom Hardy, John mm-hmm. Hurt, Benedict Cumberbatch, Sharon Hines. So everyone's in this movie. Yes. Um, but the reason why I, I look at it as kind of the the uh, definition of a Cold War movie is because it's all based on that that spy back and forth, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is a big deal. Yeah. Yes, and uh, that you will see you will see that somewhere on my on my list of Cold War movies for sure. You will see that. Um, we can't uh, we can't leave that one off. And uh, another one I'm watching. In, oh, I heard somebody at the door. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> in uh, in doing my research for this, I've actually uncovered several movies that I never saw and wasn't really aware of. So mm-hmm. I'm in the process of watching those right now. Uh, one of them is uh, from 1989, The Russia House, uh, which mm-hmm. has Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer. And so I'm like a half hour into it and I'm intrigued. It's based on a John Le Carre novel uh, who also wrote the novel that Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was based on. Uh, so yeah, he's, he's kind of the quintessential uh, Cold War spy author. Uh, so that's another one from him. And there's a movie called The Tunnel from 2001, which apparently is about uh, a bunch of people who tried to dig a tunnel from East Germany to East Berlin to West Berlin. Uh, but I've never heard of this movie, and it looks intriguing. So I'm going to try and find it somewhere and watch it. Yeah, I know we just we recently talked about um, the Courier. Mm-hmm. I recently, and you had recommended that um, Bridge of Spies would be another mm-hmm. um, one that is more into the spy aspect of things when it comes to the Cold War. Um, there, there are a lot of movies that are, and and when you talk about tangentially related to yeah. the Cold War. So, Several of the Bond movies mm-hmm. um, take place in that setting. The Man from Uncle has aspects of the Cold War in it. There's, there's just a lot. There are um, that uses that, like you said, as a background. I mean, mm-hmm. and obviously the Hunt for Red October. Yeah, too, yeah. So a lot, of, a lot of these will be on my list, uh, but you'll have to check out filmforfans.com to see the the list and how I've ordered them specifically. Um, and you'll also get a, a breakdown of each of the movies and why I think it represents uh, it's a good Cold War version of the movie. Uh, so yeah, so check that out. Visit filmforfans.com. That'll be up. Should be up as soon as this video posts, which should be on Friday. And I'll try to put a, a link in the description for it. Okay. Uh, so now let's uh, move on to the watch list and I will uh, add, I will give up my talking about my movies I watch because uh, they were all either Cold War movies or Thor Love and Thunder. So <laughs> we've already talked about the movies I watched this week. Uh, so Rob, what'd you watch? Um, I watched, uh, so it was interesting. I was at the library and I like literally I just stopped in an aisle and started moving my hand until it landed on a disc box 
And that was I watched. Um, And I watched the movie is called Sarah's Key, and I never heard of it before. Mm. Uh, It is uh, mostly in French, with some in English. So um, it is a foreign film, Um, but it's about a girl who her family is displaced from their home in France during uh, the beginning stages of World War II, and uh, from France. 70,000 plus Jews were uh, deported to Germany Mm. um, to the concentration camps where many of them did not uh, survive. And this follows uh, one of the families who was part of that being rounded up and uh, the girl trying to protect and save her brother um, follows her life beyond that. And this all takes place because the protagonist of the movie is moving into that apartment with mm. her fiance and finds out the history of the apartment and how it's related to her fiance's family. And it's very, a very intense emotional movie. Um, apparently it's also a book that I was not aware of. Um, I don't know if I could read the book because the movie was emotional enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, I saw that movie and what else did I, I know I watched a couple other things. Um, I just can't remember off the top of my head. I think I'm too excited about seeing Nope tomorrow night. So, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that is the show. Uh, thank you for checking out filmforfans.com. Make sure you tell your friends about it and visit uh, visit the website. We've got lots of content on there. We'll have movie reviews up there, and of course, my list of Cold War movies will be up there also. Uh, Until next time, enjoy the movies.